Morning, church. It is good to be with you. Let me invite you, if you haven't already, to take a hold of your copy of God's Word. Open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. This morning, we're looking at the first seven verses of chapter 2. Thursday night, I came home to my house, and I noticed that there was a, a you know when, when water gets in sheetrock and it bubbles? I noticed a bubble around my hood vent in my kitchen, and water was coming down, running down the vent, and it was coming out of the four corners right by the lights of the range, dripping down. And I thought, man, I, <laughs> the Lord must really want to wash me clean of something. There's so much water in my life right now. My truck leaks, the church leaks, my house leaks, <laughs> everything leaks. <clears throat> so I got up into the attic and with a flashlight, and I saw that water was dripping from uh, one of our air vents in the roof. And after calling my dad, he suggested that I go up onto the roof with a brush and, and brush around the vent to see if there's any kind of blockage or dirt or debris that was maybe causing the water not to run downhill and, and run uphill that would come into the vent. So there wasn't much. I got up onto the roof. I, I got up there with a brush. I, I brushed around the vent, and then I got back into the attic. And I don't really have an attic. I have a, a hole in the wall that I cut in my ceiling to get into about this much space. So I was, you know, army crawling across the beams and there was insulation everywhere. And I finally got around the vent and I noticed it stopped leaking. It was great. There was water. There was water pooled up uh, on the two by four that was sitting there and they could see it just kind of running down along the vent. And to me, it was such a vivid illustration of the problems that occur when something that's supposed to run downstream <laughs> runs upstream, like roofs, roofs were made to, to have the water flow in a certain way. And when this water was not flowing the way it was supposed to, of course, water has beautiful cleansing properties, right? Many of us use that to shower, right? <laughs> and clean ourselves. <laughs> but water also has devastating effects, right? We see it in our building here, the leak that happened in the roof, that it's caused sheetrock damage and, and odor and smell. And it showed me, I think, what Paul is trying to get at, too, in, in correcting Timothy, that when something small, like a little piece of debris or, or mud or dirt, causes blockage and causes rain not to run downhill, and when that flow is reversed, horrible things happen. A small change can have devastating effects. For example, if you change the teaching that God desires all people to be saved to God desires some, it's a little chain of a word, some to be saved, can lead to a church that's clicky, that's self-focused, that's not praying for all people. Relationships might be based on social economic classes. They might not be based on families or money and power. If you change the flow of the gospel, two, instead of you are accepted, therefore you obey. Two, you must obey to be accepted. Suddenly a gospel message that is intended to release burdens and bring comfort and encouragement actually does the opposite. It lays more burdens on. It, it creates shackles and weight that were intended to be freed in the gospel. It's replaced with an effort and obedience to earn acceptance and love. This actually, you, you, you change the, the motivator of love and grace to change the heart of an individual and you add the forceful effects of shame and guilt and fear. And those can motivate people. We've seen... I've seen this in my own life. We see this in many churches. The motivator can be guilt, shame, or fear. You want to be a good Christian? You got to do this. You want God to love you? You ought to do this. And 
when that transformative power of grace and love is replaced, you can't stop the leaks. There's cracks that come through and you're left feeling beat down and burdened and destroyed. This is why teaching what accords with sound doctrine, healthy teaching is so important in the life of the church. Because in these seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2, we can infer what some of the false teaching was that you had to that God didn't, in fact, love all people or he desire, didn't desire all people to be saved or Jesus didn't give his ransom, his life as a ransom for all. It was only for those who were obeying the law or those who might be Jewish or whatever they might participate in. And we see that Paul here is calling, he's opening the call to the Ephesian church to pray for all people. And you see how what we believe, the theology that we have, the doctrines that we believe affects how we live and, and the activities that we engage in and the conduct that we have. So he's calling the the church to pray for all kinds of people. They're not supposed to exclude anyone in their prayers. And he's going to give three reasons why the church should pray for all people. Number one, he says it's pleasing to God. And he writes there, God desires all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. Secondly, it accords with, or it's in line with the very work of the mediator, Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for all. And thirdly, it is in accords, in accordance to Paul's very ministry. Paul was entrusted, was sent, was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles the people who were formerly excluded from the people of God, essentially all non-Jewish people. Paul is called to be the apostle to them. So let's look at what he says there in, in verse one. First of all, then, in the Greek, parakaleo soon pronton, I urge you, therefore, first of all. And the therefore, I think the then is connecting all to what Paul has written in chapter one. So he's called Timothy to stay in Ephesus. Remember, he says, remain in Ephesus to correct false teaching. Paul has shared the story of the evidence of God's grace in his life, his story, how Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom he was the foremost. He wanted the Timothy and the Ephesians to know that even someone like Paul, even someone who was formerly a blasphemer and an opponent of the church can be saved. Anyone can be saved, right? Then he has said, uh, he's reminded Timothy, use the gift that you've been given to continue, to persevere, to correct sound and, and, and false teaching and teach sound, healthy teaching. And he said this, this sound, healthy teaching is so important that I've actually removed two people from the church. He used that phrase, I've handed them over to Satan, <laughs> which seems super intense, but just means that he's, he's removed them for the church. And then he's saying, therefore, Timothy must teach healthy doctrine. And it looks like it's marked by a call to prayer, a prayer that's for all people because salvation is for all. And God's desire is that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So to not, for, not to pray for all kinds of people is symptomatic of a problem. And the bad fruit, the heart of that problem is a, a false teaching that God does not desire all people to be saved. That salvation is not offered to all people. So he says, first of all, then, connecting to what he said in chapter one, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions. Now, all these words here, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings, they can describe different kinds of prayers, but the point seems to be that all kinds of prayers should be made for all kinds of people. All sorts of prayer for all sorts of people. And Paul especially highlights kings, those who are in high positions. Elsewhere, Paul has written this to the church in Rome. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
So Paul wants the church to pray for those people that are in leadership, those who are in government, those leaders, so that the church ultimately in this context would be a good witness. It says, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Notice what Paul doesn't say. Pray for all kinds of people, for kings, for those who are in high positions and authority, so that they can make policies that make your life easier. So that they can make policies that you agree with. So that you can live a life that you've always dreamt of. (laughs) He doesn't say, little asterisk there. Pray for leaders and kings and those who are in authority, but only for those that you agree with. He says, pray for those in high positions that we may lead a certain kind of life. And he gives four descriptions of what that life looks like. Peaceful, quiet, Godly, dignified, peaceful. Christians are as if it is possible with them, if it depends upon them, to live at peace with everyone. The Apostle Paul, he writes a similar thing in, in the letter to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter four, look at the second half of starting in verse 10. It says, but we urge you brothers to do this more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So quietly doesn't seem to me that you live among outsiders and they never hear you speak. <laughs> Although that might be a good, never mind. That might be good for some of us to do, right? But he doesn't, it's not like you can't ever speak. And we're going to see this in a very uh, difficult and controversial passage next week that Paul describes women should be silent in the churches. I don't think it means that they shouldn't talk, right? And we don't think it means that because women talk in our church, right? (laughs) We just had Stephanie pray and read. But that'll be for next week. So pray for me. (laughs) We know that Jesus has promised his people that in the world they will have conflict. They will have opposition. So peace doesn't necessarily even mean the, the freedom from conflict or opposition, But the focus in 1 Timothy, just like the focus in in Thessalonians, was so that you may walk properly before outsiders. The focus is that they might conduct themselves in such a way that they don't bring unnecessary dispute or disregard to the gospel. It refers to a manner of life, not necessarily to to speech, words of speech. Christians are, are to call to live in such a way that promotes, it facilitates, it advances the message of the gospel. In other words, the way that they live their life, their conduct, their behavior, doesn't undercut the message that they believe. It's to behave in such a way that doesn't bring unnecessary opposition and dispute and disregard. Right, so yes, Christians, we will experience opposition and persecution in this world. <laughs> but it doesn't mean we have to go out our way and, and find it ourselves. So I'm sure you know, or maybe you're this person themselves, see this on social media, where they talk about how I'm just being persecuted. And they refer to being persecuted because they're a Christian, but really they're being persecuted because they're kind of a jerk. <laughs> they're rude. And they're blaming the fact that they're Christians for their rudeness. Anyways, <clears throat> that wasn't, a, okay, let's keep going. Number two, <laughs> Quiet. Peaceful and quiet life. It's along these lines. 
It means not that, right, we're not to speak, not that we don't communicate. It, it refers to a kind of behavior that you could describe as tranquil. Anyone ever hiked up to Lake Serene? I've seen pictures of it. It looks beautiful. <laughs> but I pictured this lake. You just picture a, a, a serene lake, a lake that's, you know, it doesn't have uh, boaters and, and water skiers ripping through and causing wake and stuff. It's, it's tranquil. It's, it's calm. And it's, it's, I think it kind of describes the posture of the soul, a manner of life that everything around you might be going crazy. There might be all this noise around you, but, but you are a person that's marked by calm, tranquil, quiet. Tranquil means being untroubled and free from disturbances especially free of noise and uproar. We could describe a calm demeanor. Paul desires the church to be a good witness and to live lives in such a way that display the beauty and the power and the sufficiency of the gospel. So when there is suffering and chaos and noise around us, Christians aren't to get wrapped up into that. We don't, we're not supposed to be quick to anger, quick to judge, quick to get wrapped up into conspiracies, sucked into vain discussions, because the reputation of Christ is at stake. The witness of the church is at stake. Paul also wants the church to pray, not only that Christians may live a peaceful and quiet life, right, a, a tranquil and calm life, but also, it says, godly and dignified in every way. Godly is a sense of a devout practice commitment to God, appropriate beliefs about God. It, it could be referred to as reverence, meaning you're, you're fully consecrated to God. You want to live your life in such a way that's devoted. It's, it always says pious, that old, that old word that we don't really use much anymore, but devoted to God, pure devotion to God and to accomplish his will. It's linked to this idea that we see in the Old Testament of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's this acknowledgement, reverence, submission, worship, adoration of God, responding to God appropriately in light of who he is. And then he says the word dignified, which means the quality of being worthy of esteem or respect, especially on account of your behavior. And this is what Paul says. Christians are to be marked by respectability, dignified in every way. And this would contrast the opponents of Timothy, those who are bringing disrepute to the church, those who are hurting the witness, undercutting the message. Christians are to be people who are, has a, a total whole body devotion to God. And they believe that Jesus produces a new kind of life. There you become more and more like Jesus. So the way that you conduct yourself, it, it looks like a changed life. And the change is observable in the emotional life, in the relational life, in the social life. So those who might not even share the same beliefs that Christians have are to look at the manner of life, their behavior, their character, the way that they conduct themselves and respect that. They might not respect the beliefs. They might not respect what the, what the, the tenets of what you claim to hold, right? Because some of the beliefs, if we can be honest, are outrageous to our society. A virgin gave birth? Come on. <laughs> that doesn't work. Your daughter tells you that? You know it's not true. There's three gods and one. There's this unseen realm of eternity. Right? We, they might dismiss the beliefs, but they're to look at our character, our conduct, and say, that's respectable. That's dignified. 
Because the message of the gospel can be undercut, I think, by the manner of life of the messengers. I think this is why Paul in the next chapter will give such uh, expectations and qualifications on the kind of people that are to lead and shepherd and pastor in the church. There's qualifications for elders and pastors. In fact, one of the, one of the things at the very end of the list of qualifications for an elder, a pastor, is, is this, quote, well thought of by outsiders so that he might not fall into disgrace. So this call is, is not a call to isolation. It's not a call to board yourself up in your home, to withdraw. Pastors and elders and Christians are to be in the society, but living in such a way that's distinct, that the character and the qualities that are respectable, they're well thought of by those who don't share the same faith. I mean, a quick conversation and a couple conversations with people in this community discovered that churches are not thought of well by outsiders here. The reputation, at least in, in, in Des Moines, is churches is, are self-centered. They have a self-centered focus. People in the community believe that all the churches care about is getting people to their programs. And when we were dreaming about what kind of church do we want to be back in 2015, 2016, we thought we want to be the kind of church that if we closed, if we moved. I thought, what if we were the kind of neighbors that if we moved out of the neighborhood, the neighborhood would actually miss us? They would feel the impact. We want to be known as a community of people that are calm, devout, godly in devotion, but are invested and interested in the lives of those around us. That we might earn the right to be asked, earn the right to share the gospel, have the kind of credibility to share the hope that we have. And Paul says, this is good. This praying for all people, this living a life that is peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified in every way, this is good. Verse three, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Christians are to pray for all kinds of people so that too, as they're praying for others, they're to live lives of tranquility and calmness and reverence and worship and I think sometimes when you, when you start to pray for, for others, especially those who don't share your same belief, you really start to realize what is most important in the conversation about this person that I don't want to major on, which leads to calmness, tranquility, dignity, peace. Paul says we're to live such lives because, number one, it's pleasing in the sight of God. As Christians, we don't, we don't work for the approval of God. We don't work for the the acceptance of God, but we do are called to live in such a way that is pleasing to God, to make our, our Father pleased by the way that we live, that reflects his very heart and his way of life, like a proud father who sees his children follow his instructions, right? like a proud father who sees his, his daughter grip the baseball bat in a certain way, and she corrects her form, and she crushes the ball because of the father's instructions farther than she would have had her own and the feeling of pleasure that that gives the father of a crushed T-ball. This activity of prayer for everyone, a life that's marked by calmness and peace and dignity is good. It's pleasing to God because this God desires all people to be saved. This God desires all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And how will people come to the knowledge of the truth? By the messengers of this God sharing this message in the lives and the social networks and the, the circles that God has placed them in. And it appears that the teachers in opposition to Paul and to Timothy are, are teaching a kind of gospel that's exclusive. 
that salvation is not offered to all, but only to a select few. And in this belief, only a select few are to be prayed for. And then the way that you live doesn't really matter if it's not for everyone. So there's requirements maybe for following the law, becoming ethnically Jewish. Maybe it comes from an incorrect belief that God only loves those who are righteous according to the law, which was a fallacy. There's no such thing. Paul writes, God desires that all come to know Jesus and to be rescued by him. He says, verse five, for there is one God. Various social groups don't have any other gods. This is the way, one God. Then there's one mediator between God and man. There's only one way to that God. The man, Christ Jesus, right? Christ, Messiah, Messiah, Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at a proper time. A ransom is a payment, a payment that was given for the release of someone held captive. So if you were wanted, dead, or alive, if you were imprisoned or waiting for bail, you needed a payment, you needed a ransom. And it was given, this ransom was given so that you would be released. And Jesus gave himself as that payment. Jesus is the ransom. He is not only the one mediator between God and man, but he is the ransom that gave himself for all people. And Paul has received this testimony. He said, it's been given to him and to other apostles. They've been entrusted with sharing this message at the proper time. This message that he has heralded, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation. There's no qualifications. There's only certain sinners that God will save. No, (laughs) Paul was the worst of sinners. He says, I'm the foremost. I'm the best sinner. He's saying gospels for everyone. All can be saved. Verse seven, for this, I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. (laughs) Maybe there were some in Ephesus, these false teachers, they were trying to discredit Paul. They were saying, this guy's bogus. He's got a bogus call. He's got a bogus ministry. He wasn't legit because he's ministering to Gentiles, those dirty, rotten sinners, <laughs> those Gentiles. His mission was called into question. Paul said, no, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying, right? That seems kind of weird because he's writing to Timothy. It's like, why would we expect Paul to say this to his friend, Timothy, his son in the faith? But remember, this letter was to be read. I'm not, I'm not lying. Gospels for all people. Christians are to pray for all people, to love all people, to share the message of Jesus with all people. Because Paul says God desires all people to be saved. Therefore, we pray for all people. It's pleasing to God. It's in accord with and it's in line with the work of the mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for all. And it's in accord with Paul's ministry. Paul was called to minister to these people, to all people. As a church, we celebrate this, don't we? We herald this message. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. God desires all people to be saved. There's no qualifications. Come. Jesus is, is calling you to be saved. All are welcome to be rescued. We want to live our lives in such a way, a kind of life that's marked by these characteristics. Calm, peaceful, quiet, godly, devoted, dignified, respectable, so that we don't undercut this message. Seek to live a life that is pleasing to God. Maybe you might've heard a sermon before, along maybe through the epistles, where you see a call like this, to pray for all people, so that you may live this way. And the, the thrust of the message, the application of the message is, 
Pray for all people. Do it, you church. Be more dignified. Be more godly. But that call, I mean, it's kind of, I think that message undercuts the very gospel message because the, message, the gospel message is, is when Jesus comes into your life, his grace changes our hearts and our hearts produce new behavior. And we have to keep the context of this, of this gospel in mind as we study 1 Timothy of what he has already written. Because underneath the behavior, the conduct of a life, it's aligned with these descriptions. It shows it's the mark of a heart that's been changed and continually changed by the grace of Jesus. We can't miss what the gospel, what Paul has already said about the gospel in, in chapter two. So to change from a life that's marked by maybe anger or anxiety, to change from a life that's marked by withdrawal or jerkedness, rudeness, happens through the gospel being applied. We're, we're, we're gripped by the grace of God. Right? Let's consider anger. There's someone who struggles with anger. You can try to become more peaceful by focusing on your behavior. You can uh, focus on deep breathing exercises. You can take medication. You can try to change the circumstances of your life. But I found in Jesus that there's actually a better way. A, a deeper, more free way, a more transformative way, a, a whole person kind of transformation. Robert Jones describes in his book, Uprooting Anger, he describes anger like this. Anger is our whole person active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. So, so anger is a whole person active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. So anger as an emotion itself is not a bad thing, right? We're, we're told Numerous times throughout the Old Testament, God gets angry at his people. His anger burns for his people, the Old Testament says. And it's because anger is a feeling of, of judgment that something is wrong and evil. Well, the problem with our anger often is what we perceive as evil and the standard by which we judge that wrong is preferential, not according to the righteousness of God. So yesterday I got angry. I was building Ikea furniture. And many of you guys can relate to me. <laughs> I was building a loft bed and it wasn't coming together like I thought. You know, there's, there's so many things about the instructions that I feel like could be improved. There's opportunities for growth. You know, you, you screw a certain screw in and then the next page tells you, oh, not that one, the, the shorter one. That's like two millimeters difference, you know. So I was getting angry. And it would be wrong of me to say, well, if my kids weren't bothering me, if these instructions were better, if my wife would just listen to me, then I wouldn't be angry. If the IKEA instructions were better, then I wouldn't have to yell in anger. See, my standard, my version of righteousness, the standard is not based on what God says or wants. It's, it's wrong. My preference is I'm not getting what I want. I get angry. And there's a ruling pride in my heart that, that says, I must get what I want. I insist upon it. And when that doesn't happen, anger rises up. Anger rises up when you don't get what you want. And, and those desires that quietly rule your heart spring their ugly head. So the answer to anger, I don't think, is breathing techniques. Those can be helpful sometimes. Or medication. Or changing your circumstances. The answer to anger is 
humility. There's an appropriate hierarchy of desires. So the appropriate hierarchy of desires would be this. I desire to love my wife as Jesus had modeled for his church. I want to be calm and understanding. I don't want to be harsh. I want to treat her with compassion. I love my girls. I don't want to be harsh with them. I want to be kind and patient with them like God has been with me. I desire to build Ikea furniture quickly. What happens when that subverts the other two? I lash out at my wife. I lash out at my kids. This is why I think, I mean, I've seen the benefit of counseling so much, the, the personal ministry of God's word, where an individual is able to draw out what are those secret desires? What are those quiet ruling desires in your heart that you might not even be aware of? <laughs> and you're sitting here thinking, man, my circumstances would change. If I could just have better kids, my wife would show a little bit of understanding. I wouldn't be so angry. Proverbs 25 says, the person, the purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. So oftentimes we, we might need some help and there's humility in seeking the help of others to see what is quietly ruling in my heart that I might not be aware of. Often you're unaware of these desires and you're stuck in the same problem and relationships around you are withering and you're blaming everyone else but you. The place of true and lasting change is in the heart. To bring this illustration to a conclusion, the answer to our anger is being gripped with the gospel of Jesus that we are humbled and simultaneously built up and shown how loved we are in Jesus. In other words, to grow in these character traits, quiet, peaceful, dignified, godly, to grow in Christ-like behavior comes from having a heart that is continually changed by Christ. We must apply the word of God, the gospel to our hearts to change and affect our behavior. So if God desires that all are to be saved and we are to have this desire and this very desire for all people is to affect our prayers so that we're praying for all people and we want to live before all people in such a way that invites them to ask more. The way that we handle stress and suffering and relational conflict is different. They want to know more. We ask God, God, cultivate in my heart a desire, a heart that is in line with you, that is being changed by you. And I think one of the ways that we can do this to grow in humility and dependence in prayer is to see ourselves as one of the all that Christ came for. I've been reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with my girls at night. And last night we just read chapter 14, The Triumph of the Witch. Just spoiler alert, you know, plug your ears if you don't know about anything about the story. The witch kills Aslan. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this brother named Edmund. There's four siblings, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And Edmund is kind of a, as, <laughs> you might call him a stink pot. <laughs> He's not a great character. He's a traitor. He, he doesn't listen, he does his own thing, he rebels, and he actually sides with the white witch, this wicked woman who causes in Narnia it to be always winter, never Christmas. That's basically hell, right? <laughs> and I remember growing up, you know, reading the books and maybe you watch the movie, you know the person that you don't identify with? Edmund. He's the worst. 
But you know who I identify with usually as we read books or stories? We identify with the hero, right? Remember watching, I mean, take Star Wars, for example. I, I watched Star Wars so much as a kid. And I always played as Luke Skywalker, right? You also really like Lord of the Rings, reading through Lord of the Rings. And I would, I would pretend to be Aragorn. My dad made the sweet wooden sword. I'd, I'd run throughout the backyard just slaying orcs. I wanted to be the hero. So when you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when you're, in, when you're met with this story and you, you see the fact that Aslan, this majestic lion of courage and strength, this pure leader sacrifices himself, exchanges his own life for Edmund. You think Edmund? This guy deserves to get what he gets. Let the witch kill him. I mean, he left his family. He betrayed Mr. Tumnus. He gave up the, 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 the location of where the meeting would be at the stone table. I mean, Edmund is horrible. He deserves this kind of punishment for his foolish awfulness. You read the story a lot differently. It affects you differently. If instead of viewing yourself as Peter or Lucen, Lucen, <laughs> Susan or Lucy, or at characters of valor, the ones that they're on the good side, they get it the whole time. They're, they're committed to Mr. Tumnus, to saving his life. They're committed to the flourishing of Narnia. I mean, these are the people we want to be. If, if you identify yourself, however, with Edmund, you view yourself as Edmund, the traitor to the true king seeking destruction of Narnia through loyalty through the white witch. You are humbled as you see the sacrifice of Jesus in your place. That humbles you. It cultivates humility, a life that's more captured by the gospel and just how overflowing and kind and patient God has been in his grace towards you. This causes us to, to live our lives in such a way that we are amazed that God would give up his life for an Edmund like me or you. And as we are captured by this story and we're reminded by this story, we want to live our lives in such a way that magnify this story. This is too good to be true. Can you believe what Jesus did for me? I hated him and he loved me. And he gave his life for me in kindness and grace and humility. And I've seen the changes that this has on the way that I live relationally. Relationships change out of this kind of gospel, grace, love, forgiveness flow. Marriages flourish when this is at the center. Not a kind of tit for tat bitterness. I'm only going to love you because you love me. This kind of unconditional love changed my life. And I'm seeing it change the lives of those around me. And I want to live in such a way that displays this beauty and this power of the gospel. So I want to be tranquil. I want to pray for all people. I was one of those people. And in light of our ransom, we want to give our lives to live a life of peace and godliness that we might be a witness to the man, the mediator, Christ Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for us, certainly he can do it for you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you that while we were yet sinning, while we were rebelling against you, while we were ignorant of you, we were self-centered, self-focused, self-glorifying, self-loving, self-loving, 
you loved us. You gave your life for us. It wasn't because of what we did or didn't do. It wasn't because we were qualified or we weren't qualified. It wasn't because we were a certain ethnicity or not. It wasn't because we had a certain family of origin or religious upbringing. It was simply an act of sheer grace. And we thank you, Father. We could never repay what you have done. And out of our gratitude and thankfulness, we want to live a life that displays how much we truly appreciate this. Use us, Father. We are surrendered to your will. We are surrendered to your grace. We want to see you at work in us that others might have a glimpse, have an exposure, have an experience with the grace of God. Would you cause us to do that? We pray that that you might use us. We pray for for all people. We pray for those in government, for those in, in authority. We pray that that the Christians, that the churches in our community would not be known for their noise, for disturbances, for a lack of interest, but a loving commitment to the other, a godly life, a respectable life. Thank you for the gift of this church family that that you have given us to encourage one another, to walk alongside one another, to be reminded of the the preciousness of this truth. And we pray that as we respond to you now in song and in observing the Lord's Supper, that we would be edified, that we would be built up, that we would be called to continue in love and good deeds. We believe you have laid those out for us. You have prepared those for us, and we want to walk in them. Be glorified in our life, Father. Be glorified in our church. We give you all the glory and the honor and the praise. In your son's name, I pray, the mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.